0: All right, uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 7, and we believe it or not are going to cover uh, 28 verses tonight. I hope. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I
1: know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is really a very important um, message because it's going to be talking about the change in the priesthood. I mean, the book of Hebrews this really sums up so much of what the whole book has been leading up to. You know, we started out seeing how God is, um, you know, Jesus was the son of God. And we, we basically built on that, challenging the traditional church thought of the day. And I don't think that you can find anything more radical to preach on, especially in his day, than what he's about to preach on. So let's begin here in Hebrews seven, verse one. It says this, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now I know last week we kind of ended talking about that a little bit, but we're going to build even more, but I wanted you to get the full context of this chapter as we entered it. Um, Now we realize as well that Melchizedek, Remember, he was Abraham's priest way back in Genesis chapter 14. That's when we first get introduced to him, and that's the only time we get introduced to him outside of Psalm 110. But keep in mind what a priest is. A priest was your teacher. He was your mediator. But, and by teacher, I mean to teach God's word to the people. And so here is a guy who Abraham, it would be his peer in a sense. Then, as we saw here, it gives the bio of Melchizedek. And we talked about this last week, but everything in his bio fits Jesus as being him. I, I personally believe this is Yeshua Jesus in the Old Testament. Okay? Um, we talked about last week that the Jews try to make this Shem, but that, how that could not be, doesn't fit. Uh, but the Levitical priest... When you typically think of priests, that's where you go to. You, you go to the, the children of Aaron, the, the Levites. And that priesthood was exclusively based on your genealogy. Exclusively. But not here with Melchizedek. And this is going to be one of the huge differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. If you recall in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, when the uh, Israelites are coming back from Babylon, they've been captive for 70 years. They're coming back to Jerusalem, and the priests, I think maybe even Ezra, that the priests, they, some of them don't have their genealogical record, and so they were not allowed to even be priests until someone would come with the Urim and the Thummim who basically could cast lots to find out if they were truly in the line of Levi or not, because if they weren't, they were not allowed to be a priest. That's how serious this is. Now, this Melchizedek is immortal. He has no beginning of days, no end of days. He is eternal. Again, only Yeshua fits that. But it also shows that there is no end of life. And as you're going to see, that was one of the things that limited the Old Testament priests was their death. It would bring that to an end. But the differences with him is that this. it's that he was made like the Son of God. Now we said that last week, we talked about that briefly in the sense that I think it may be because he wasn't coming. As Savior at this point and so the son of God is a term that seems to be related to the Messiah in the role of um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son okay well anyway that's kind of somewhat of a review but the writer here is now about to drop a bomb things that If you would go back there and say, to anybody in this century, you would have been stoned, you would have been kicked out of the synagogue, you would have been an absolute heretic. Because you have to think about what's going on when, if this is Paul indeed who writes Hebrews, I kind of tend, I believe it is, but you know, that's up to debate. Paul, when he is writing this, the temple is in full operation right now. There are Levites, priests, who are making sacrifices right there at the temple. You could go into the temple. Everything is up and going, and Paul is going to be preaching against every bit of it. That would have gone over like a lead balloon. There's just no way people are going to accept this without proof. How would you be able to take a religious system and turn it upside down? I mean, absolutely upside down. The only way you can do this is if you can prove it scripturally. And honestly, guys, I think that we're seeing that happening in the churches today. We are seeing a system that has been around for centuries getting turned over, and you know why? Because of the Bible only. Only because of Scripture. Because we have strayed so far from it. But anyway, let's go on to verse 4 then, to hit some new ground here. He says, Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, We talked about that last week, the tithe, that he gave that tithe. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. And I think maybe we did touch a little bit on that last week in the sense that even those that were supposed to be receiving the tithes, the Levites, were giving the tithe through Abraham because though they had not been had born yet, they were in the loins of Abraham. So he says, so in essence, even they were tithing. Those that were supposed to be receiving the tithe. And so he's drawing out that all 12 tribes of Israel here were the only one that were to receive the tithe, the, the tithe were the Levites. But here they even are giving it through the loins of Abraham. Verse 6, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them, from the Levites, tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So, obviously, verse 6 here, we're talking about Melchizedek. He whose genealogy is not derived from them, not from the Levites. In verse 8, again, Levi receives tithes, but there, that word there, okay, here, mortal men, The Levites, they receive tithes, but there in Melchizedek, he receives them. So the point being here is you want to know how great Melchizedek is? He's even greater than the Aaronic priests, greater than the Levites because they paid tithes through Abraham. So again, this is huge. Paul is going against the priestly temple that's in operation. But he's reasoning with them through the scriptures and saying, remember Melchizedek? The Levites paid tithes through Abraham to them. And that was, that's going to start to make them think, because it's going to be hard for them to argue with the scriptures that this is what's going on. Now, when the priests got a tenth, their tithe, what they would do is they took a tenth of that tenth and they gave it to the other sons of Aaron. Because we I mentioned this last week that there are priests, all priests had to be Levites, but not all Levites were priests. You had those that carried some of the temple things, you know, they're just called the sons of Aaron, the Kohathites and so on, the Merorites and So, the priests would take out of their tithe and give a tenth of that to the other sons of Aaron who were not priests. And anyway, so even they are kind of dividing this up, but Melchizedek is even greater than all of the sons of Aaron as well. He gets the full tithe. Verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? And here's where I think it starts getting good. Therefore, if perfection could have been obtained through these priests... They had the law. Everybody loves the law. I mean, Abraham, I mean, the Pharisees, they were just glorifying the law. It's basically saying if the Levitical priesthood was the end game, why did he need to bring another one about? Again, one of those things is going to make those people go, huh, never thought of that. But yeah, something doesn't seem right here. So he's making the, the listener here question and think about this. Um, otherwise, what further need was there? But they all knew that this, there was one coming in the priesthood of Melchizedek because Psalm 110 talks about this. We, we talked about that last week. He had introduced that. So that's also fresh in their minds. I'm going to take you and give you some clues that they should have picked up on in the Old Testament that perfection would not be obtained through the Levitical Aaronic priesthood. We're going to take you to Exodus 32, verse 4. Now, this is the golden calf event. Now, remember, Moses has gone up on the mountain. He's been up there for 40 days and 40 nights. The people think he's not coming back. And so they go to their priest, Aaron, and they have him make this golden calf. Now, we'll just read it, and then we'll talk a little more about it. He received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now, Again, I know I've mentioned this in other times, but who are they celebrating? Who are they worshiping with this golden calf? Yahweh, the Hebrew word for Lord, there is Yahweh. So they were. Go ahead. I was
1: going to say, so in like halfway through verse four, it says like Aaron's quoting, you know, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Are you getting to that, or
0: well? I wasn't, but we can, because I think that's an, a good point. Even
1: on your screens lower... Because it does say that they're, yep. that they're worshiping Yahweh, but then I guess maybe I just picked that up now.
0: I think what he's doing is he's connecting to their culture. Because who did the Egyptians worship? A bunch, a bunch of different gods. But one in particular was a bull. And so what are they making? Something that they are familiar with. Something that they knew from the Egyptian worldly Pagan culture. And so, what they're doing is taking something that's of the world, of their culture that they were familiar with, and they're saying, All right, we will worship God this way, and we're just going to call it worshiping God our way, rather than Yah's way. It's just interesting that they're applying their culture to their religion. And ultimately, I, I know we've done that in our churches today in so many different ways. You know, our music has been in large part due to our culture. Not to say that, you know, that's sinful always either, but I'm just saying culture affects it. I think some of it is bad, Uh, that our music has been extremely affected by the culture of me-centeredness within, you know, lyrics, repetitiveness, I've talked about this before, but if you do a study, you will see that some of the repetition that has gone on in our music, it wasn't like that years ago. The seven, you know, the same seven words 11 times or whatever. But that has come about because of the New Age influence in the church uh, from the mantras. And this is, I can't remember the guy's name, but he wrote like deceived on purpose. Years ago, the, the, one of the reasons I really do not like the Message Bible is because of the, the translators of the Message Bible, where they got that stuff. Some of those translators of the Message Bible studied uh, something called the Course on Miracles that Oprah Winfrey even promoted years ago. And it is absolutely pagan, new age. And so that is why, like in the Message Bible, the way the Lord's Prayer is worded is exactly the way it is on, in, in A Course on Miracles. And I don't remember how it's worded, but like, um, as in heaven, on earth, something, that, that phrase is worded differently in the Message. But that is because of the cultural influence And so some of those New Age, if you know New Age, a lot of it is based on repetition and mantras to empty the mind so that your mind can then receive, well, really, a pagan spirit, ultimately. That's what New Age is based on. Now, they're not going to put it that way, but they will say empty your mind so that you can receive. I'm adding a pagan spirit to that. What has happened in churches today is it's become more repetitive because we want to empty our mind, not think about the words that are on the screen, but to just receive an emotional experience. Now, in the church, we say we want to empty the mind just so that we can meditate on God and you know receive the Spirit. It's the same kind of thing, but again, it never used to be that way. Why? Well, because it was New Age hadn't influenced the church yet. But that is one of the reasons we have that repetition so often today. And that's, I mean, you can trace this. And it's one of the reasons why I don't like it. I'm not saying it's sinful when you guys go to church and you're saying the same thing seven times. But I do think it's important to understand where the roots are coming from. Okay? Um, Anyway, we'll come back to some of that. Verse 5 here So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. So in verse 21, jumping down there, it says, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Keep in mind, this is the very beginning of the priesthood the Aaronic priesthood is just beginning and what do we see happening immediately the priest screwing up I think this is prophetic I think it's very prophetic to show you that it would be flawed that the Aaronic priesthood would not be perfect it's not the end game and so I, I personally think that that's why this is, is seen right away. Now we see that all throughout. We're going to see priests that screw up. But like it's that. all pointing to an inferior priesthood. What's don't
1: that? Aaron's sons like, mess up real bad. With
0: the right away. Nadab and Abihu. Yeah. With their unauthorized fire. Yep. Do you know
2: anything about... In this one it says, Aaron, in verse 24, which you don't have... And there says, "This is Aaron speaking. Whosoever has any gold, let them break it off." So they gave it to me. Then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf.
0: Yeah, I tend to think it was kind of Aaron trying to justify himself. There are those who have said that there were, you know, demonic uh, spirits at work, and that. He throws it in and out comes this. I tend to think it's just Aaron trying to justify himself, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, what's also amazing is the results of this. Here's your priest, the, the guy that's supposed to be the highest up to teach the Word of God to the people. And he's falling short so much so that God was going to kill Aaron. And so Moses has to step in and intercede for him and as a result then Aaron is spared now Moses is a good Christ picture here as well and is that intercessor in essence that's what's going to have to happen is even these priests need an intercessor but that's not the way it is with Melchizedek so again these are things that are going to make the readers of the first century go, oh yeah, yeah, there is something better. Now, the other thing is, it's kind of interesting is, even Moses, the intercessor, did not get to go into the promised land. Moses represents the law of God for the most part. And the law... In essence, then, it's showing the law would not have the power to lead you into the promised land. There had to be something greater. Someone who could keep that law fully, Moses could not. He struck the rock rather than speaking to the rock that second time. So, again, somebody better they had to be looking for somebody better, because even he couldn't get into the promised land. Numbers 20, verse 23, says this, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Jump into verse 28, Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, put them on Eliezer his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. So God speaking to Moses and Aaron here, they couldn't enter the promised land because they did not consider God holy. Completely. That's what God's word basically says. So again, just one more time, prophetically showing that the priesthood was not going to be perfect. So, he's got the bomb that he's going to drop. The fuse is now lit. And it's showing that the priesthood is is not perfect. He's now going to drop that bomb. Okay, the fuse is lit. He's got their attention. And here comes the bomb. Verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity there is also a change of the law. That'll get you kicked out of the synagogue right there. Okay? Even now, today, we have in Israel the Temple Institute. And in the Temple Institute, they are trying to rebuild everything. They've actually got everything ready to go um you know this is why we hear about the red heifer to to institute this really what they need is they need that temple mount they believe so that they can rebuild the temple on the temple mount they've got all the pieces ready to go they they're you know supposedly have this red heifer because the red heifer is what you need to make the sacrifice to purify everything to begin the sacrificial system all over again and so we may look at this like well this doesn't apply to us today but let me tell you Christians have given millions upon millions, like most of the money, I think it's like 80% of the money that the Temple Institute has to rebuild everything for this third temple has come from Christians. It's pretty amazing. Now, those of you who have gone to Israel, you saw the menorah. That menorah is what? I don't know, six, seven, eight feet tall? By so wide, you know, maybe that eight, nine feet wide And that's solid gold. Now, the one that you saw outside, that one's not, but that's the replica of the real one, that's solid gold. Yeah. Okay, we're talking multi-millions, tens of millions of dollars, all in an effort to rebuild a third temple and all the Jews are looking so that they could reinstitute this sacrificial system. Think about that. You go even today to some of these Jews you see walking around downtown and tell them that the Torah has been changed, the law has been changed, and you're not going to get much of a good conversation from them. They'll probably just ignore you. But if you were a Jew telling a Jew that, you're out of there. So how can Paul get away with saying this? There is nothing more precious and holy to a Jew than what he has just attacked. The priesthood and the law? I mean, for him to walk away from this, not stoned, he's got to have some pretty good biblical proof. Well, Deuteronomy 4.2. This is why he should be stoned if he doesn't have proof. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Notice, it says you shall not add to the word. God can, though. God has every right to amend His word. However, if He's going to amend the word, the only way He is going to do it is if He already told you that He was going to do it. That He would have put some marker in there. For example, Jeremiah 31. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. Okay, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel at that time. I will put the law in their minds and on their hearts. Right? On their hearts. Notice that the new covenant wasn't getting rid of the law unlike many in the church say today. He's going to change the location of the law. He says, this is the covenant I will make. This is the new covenant. I will put my law, same law, in a new location in your hearts and in your minds. By the way, just a little side note here. This is how so many people get into so much trouble is through hyper-literal interpretation of Scripture sometimes. When God said in Deuteronomy to bind the word on their foreheads he's not taught... this is you go to the you see the jews and their phylacteries and you see them binding their arms because of that very thing they took it hyper literally and that the physical act of this somehow makes them more spiritual but what god is saying is this was a picture of what was going to happen in the new covenant that he will write his word in our minds not in phylacteries in a box, but it's going to be in our heart, in our spirit, so that we have a desire to obey Him, not some physical picture of it. Now again, I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine. But that's not making you holy. What does is Yeshua Jesus. That's it. So the point that I want you to make or or understand though is that God will and does amend his word but only when he has already pre-warned you or you know gave you indications that that would happen Jeremiah is an example Psalm 110 is an example and this is how you keep from getting stoned Psalm 110 the Lord has sworn and will not relent you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Every Jew understood that as a prophetic picture of the Messiah. So all Paul has to say is there was one better. Remember Melchizedek? And they're gonna, oh yeah. Now this Melchizedek, remember, he he had no beginning and no end. He would have he would not die. Remember Yeshua? The one that you crucified on the cross? The one that everybody in town knows resurrected from the dead? So many people have seen it. They're going to go, oh yeah. This would be enough to make them think that is the Messiah. Going on to verse 12. For the priesthood, being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Again, note that it doesn't say the law is gone. The law has only changed. So how has the law changed? We might have to talk about that a little bit later. Just know that God is... Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and always. Malachi says, I, the Lord, do not change. So I think part of that change I've already addressed is the law's location from stone to the heart to the mind. Now we also see he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. Melchizedek did not belong to the tribe of Levi. He did not belong to the tribe of Aaron so how can he be a priest? Well it goes on here. Um, like in verse 13, just kind of highlighting it here again, he belongs to another tribe, yet it doesn't say Melchizedek, doesn't say which tribe, but we do know that the Lord was from the tribe of Judah, right? And so, showing the key being that he's showing that Melchizedek doesn't come from Levi. Yeshua never came from Levi. It's a new priesthood and thus a new law or a change in the law. And I'm going to just show you how important it was that you not be a, from the tribe of Judah or any other tribe. Only the tribe of Levi. In Numbers 3 verse 10, it says, So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons. They shall attend to the priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. You remember, uh, Not Uza, trying to think the the king who went in, he got powerful and he goes in. Was it? Somebody will help me, but the king that goes into into the uh, Holy of Holies or into the holy place even to offer uh, incense and he turns leprous and the priests are like, uh, and he's like, oh, and it says, even indeed he wanted to get out after that. You, if you weren't a Levite, did not go in. You were to be put to death. Even Josephus, Jewish historian around the time of Christ, says this, Whence it is a custom of our country that no one should take the high priesthood of God, but he who is of the blood of Aaron, while everyone that is of another stock, though he were a king, can never obtain that high priesthood. So again, this is just showing the weight of saying that the priesthood has been changed. It's so huge that this is, I mean, this is the culture of the Jew right now that you're dead if you're not a Levite. You just don't do it. And uh, so anyway, this message isn't going to to be an easy pill to swallow without this kind of proof. Um, Verse 15. And it is yet far more evident if... In the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So again, he's taking you to Psalm 110. He's quoting that here to give that biblical support, to say, listen, God can amend, but he told us he was going to do it. And the most legitimate aspect that he brings up here that we talked about, but according to the power of an endless life. They knew that Yeshua had resurrected and it's giving his message absolute biblical and experiential credibility for those who were there at that time who believed in the resurrection. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no way anybody would have bought this message. And you know, today we have those groups that try to say that Jesus never resurrected from the dead, you know, the swoon theory and all of these kind of nonsensical ideas. I'm telling you, Paul would have been stoned. Absolutely would have been stoned if they hadn't known widespread knowledge that Yeshua is alive. So I think that's kind of a powerful part right there. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now that word "annul" in the the Hebrew here, or Greek, I'm sorry, in in, uh, the New Testament, it literally means this, a dissolving or no longer in effect. So you could say on one hand, there's a dissolving of the former commandment, something that's no longer in effect. Now it's this kind of verbiage where we get Christians taking things out of context today and saying, oh, Jesus got rid of the law. Look, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and it was unprofitable. However, Scripture interprets Scripture. If this is what you're going to stand on, then what do you do when Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? What do you do when Paul says, what then, is the law bad? No, not at all. The law is good as long as one uses it properly. Do we then nullify the law? Certainly not. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on with passage upon passage upon passage of the New Testament telling you the law is not abolished, it is not null, it is not void, but I could give you Christian upon Christian upon Christian who tells you, yes it is, yes it is, yes it is. If that's how you interpret this, then you have created contradiction upon contradiction in Scripture. That means you must be wrong. Because Scripture does not contradict. Now, he does show that it was weak. Why? Because it made nobody perfect. Why? Who could keep it? Moses, the greatest guy you can imagine, didn't go into the promised land. He couldn't keep it. Aaron, your high priest, he couldn't keep it. So, if they can't, the most humble man that ever lived, Moses, how do you think you're going to do on it? Yeah, if that is how you will be made perfect, you will perfectly fail. It's that simple. So, was it profitable if you couldn't keep it? No. As a matter of fact, this is what Paul also says in Romans. I found that the very law, the very commandments intended to bring life. So does that mean are the commandments good or bad? Good. They were intended to bring life. He says, I found the very commandments that were intended to bring life actually brought death. Death came about because of that law. But God says it was intended to bring life. Did it bring life? What's that? It does, but how did it? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. Yes, because I did not come to abolish it and get rid of it. I came to accomplish its original purpose, to fulfill what it was intended to do to give you life. Only by keeping the law will you get to heaven. But you can't do it, so somebody's got to do it for you. Thank you, Jesus. He does not come to abolish, but to fulfill its its original purpose. And so this is why Paul will say the law is good, it is holy, righteous, and good he calls it. That's in the New Testament. The law is holy, but yet when we speak of the law today, all of a sudden, you're a legalist, right? I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many people think I'm a legalist just because I want to obey God out of my heart, knowing that I can't fully do it, but somebody did for me. So, I, I think this is huge for the law made nothing perfect. Why? Because what did the law do? It brought condemnation. That is what when Christ did, when he came. I, I often like it at our Passover Seder meals, when we take that fourth cup, if you've been there, you might recall that I say, Why do we have bread and wine? We know what what's the wine, the Jews, supposed to, to do. It's for... Jesus said, you know, take and drink. This is the cup of the new covenant which has been shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the blood of Jesus did for us. Brought forgiveness. So if you've got that, why did you need the body? More than that. In Romans, I don't remember what chapter, 8, 10, something like that. Uh, There's only 16 guesses I could make there. But... um, it says that the law, the condemnation of the law was removed by the body of Christ. I should look that up. I'm trying, I can't, I'm, I'm failing to pull it up exactly how it's worded. Um, I'll come back to it maybe, or maybe some one of you will find it. But it says it was removed by the body of Christ. His body removed, not the law, but the condemnation of the law. So now when I fail, as we all do, there is no condemnation through Christ Jesus. But... I mean, all these verses are popping up in my mind, also in Romans. It says that the righteous requirements of the law were fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice it said the righteous requirements of the law. Wait a minute, there's a requirement of the law? Today, people would say, there is no requirement. No, there is a requirement. Romans says that. The righteous requirements requirement of the law has been fully met in us what,
2: what
0: uh, the righteous requirement of the law I don't know my address is terrible
2: 8-3.
0: 8-3? 8-3? 8-3. Romans 8.3 the righteous requirements of the law have been fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit how? through Jesus Christ so there is a requirement of the law. But Yeshua did it for us. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. I mean, I could go on and on just on this topic alone here. But it's vital. Has anybody found that other one that I was talking about in Romans? If not, I'll find it later here for you. I can pretty f- find it pretty easily opening up another presentation. I just can't pull it up. All right. Um, going on to verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they, um, now this is, again, comparing the Aaronic priesthood, Okay, they have become priests without an oath. When they became a priest, it wasn't because they took an oath to do so, it was because they were Levites. It was on the premise that they had DNA from Aaron. But he, Melchizedek, with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. Again, he's quoting Psalm 110, saying, where did the oath come from? God took an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest according to, to the order of Melchizedek forever. Verse 22, By so much more, Yeshua has become a surety of a better covenant. So, again, powerful stuff here in my mind. The writer here, for the very first time, has introduced Yeshua. Again, what does Yeshua mean? The Lord saves. Talk about living up to your name that's it and at a perfect time so to me anyway this is all helping us understand the difference between the old and the new covenant that yes there is a new covenant but there are aspects of that old covenant that have brought in to the new the law still stands it's just its location has changed its condemnation has been taken away because Christ fulfilled it.
1: Romans 7 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him he That's was raised from the dead. Yep.
0: Yep. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So, thank you. Romans 7 4. Yeah. It wasn't an 8 or 10. Yeah, it wasn't, <laughs> see? Yeah, it wasn't an 8 or 10. We've died to the law through the body of Christ. Again, many Christians will take that away and say, okay, so the law is dead. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. I died to the law. It has killed me, but I also have rose because of Yeshua. Romans uh, 5 says, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of
2: God.
0: Through him? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Saved by His blood, how much more should we be saved by, from God's wrath through Him? And I think that's another important point to remember. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, I believe in Jesus, I pray at night, so I'm getting to heaven. Well, how much more can you be saved from God's wrath through Him, through obeying Him? You see, obedience now to the law of God has nothing to do with you getting into heaven, but it has a lot to do with you being protected from Satan's attacks, satanic oppression, depression, all kinds of things. And so obedience has blessings. And we see that in a number of cases in the New Testament too. Those who keep the commandments of God. And, by the way, that like we've said before, though, if we're not obeying God, you know, in our hearts, have a desire to obey, um, maybe, maybe you might want to really examine yourself to see if you are in the faith, as Corinthians talks about. Okay, because there will be a change in you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they, these Aaronic priesthoods, were prevented by death from continuing. They all died. But he, the one that comes in the order of Melchizedek, really Yeshua, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. So, one more weakness that he's pointing out of the current religious system. All those priests that you know that are at the temple right now, they're going to die. But Yeshua, He lives forever. Therefore, His priesthood will never ever change. Not only is it perfect, it's eternal. So, perhaps an analogy could be this. If you think about a presidency, A presidency does not change, but presidents do. Jesus is the better president who takes our country's laws, same laws that have always been there, and he uses them properly as they were meant to be. That might be a poor analogy. But the law of the old covenant didn't change. He just took them and he brought it into a priesthood. The same rules, but he, he applies it properly, righteously. I don't know, maybe that's a bad analogy. But um, I mentioned this last week, but I think it's probably worth just kind of thinking about here again that he continues forever in an unchangeable priesthood to remind you that this priesthood has been eternal. Yeshua is eternal. He was here before Aaron. So was the priesthood of Melchizedek. He was here at at, at Abraham's time. And so like I said last week, I look at it as New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. Because from Adam all the way up to Moses, what priesthood was in effect? The priesthood of Melchizedek. It has always been here. Then Aaron came, and we took a break from that for a little bit. Why? The law was added so that the trespass might increase, says Romans. So that sin might become utterly sinful. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament, and we're back to the priesthood of Melchizedek once again. It has been eternal always will be into the kingdom of God. Verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the utmost, uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's for this he did once for all when he offered up himself again pointing to the flaws of the Aaronic priesthood These guys, when they made a sacrifice, they first made one for themselves because they were not holy. They were impure. They themselves were sinners. But Yeshua is perfect without flaw. And he didn't have to make two sacrifices. He made once for all. But the priests, in making that first sacrifice, was basically admitting, yeah, I mess up too. And we don't have this problem with Melchizedek. So just one more just argument to keep him from being stoned here. Verse 28, For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath, remember Psalm 110, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. So, yes, there's been changes to the Torah, which we'll talk about. Okay? Not perfectly, but I'm going to give you an example here of a law to the change, uh, a change to the law, or an amendment, I might say. Not getting rid of it. And this is, before I get too far into it, let me just do this first. I want to show you the greatness of Yeshua our high priest. And we see that in Matthew 8, verse 1. When he, Jesus, had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. What's interesting about this is if you read in the Old Testament, only a priest could pronounce a leper clean. If you had leprosy, you would go to the priest, and he'd say, you're either clean or you're unclean. Go away for a few days, you came back, and it's okay, now you're clean. And then there was a sacrifice that was made. And here we see that this leper comes to Jesus looking for what? A priestly pronouncement. Only a priest can make you clean. And he's saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Not only a pronouncement of it, but the power to accomplish it. And this is the kind of high priest we have. What your regular priest could not do, Yeshua does. And not just declare them clean, as I said, but make them clean, holy, to forgive sins. It's kind of interesting. If you go and look at all the miracles that Jesus does, somewhere in there you're going to see an attachment to the forgiveness of sins. Go, your sins are now forgiven. Okay, Go and sin no more. That kind of thing. And again, that is only something that Yeshua, the high priest here, could do without even dying on the cross yet. He tells them that. Your sins are forgiven. Anyway, I want to give you a sneak peek into what I mean by this law being amended. We're not going to get in dive into it tonight, but I just want to give you a sample okay, of what that means. John 6.33 says this, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life so Jesus even told us his words are spirit and therefore we have to look at his word and the world spiritually now I don't mean that we spiritualize everything away I'm saying scripture interprets scripture but we understand that the literal has spiritual meaning Okay, Galatians 4 Sarah and Hagar that those are real people the real events but he says one woman represents Mount Sinai, another woman rep- represents Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly one, Sarah. Okay? Things like that. That everything that we read there has a spiritual reason. And I could give you so many examples, but when it comes to the law, we have to understand that same thing. Remember, I talked about the binding, they have taken it, taken it to the physical. But the spiritual is, it's in our minds and it's in our hearts. Right? Just uh, this Wednesday, somebody had asked me this question. When I had, He said, so if Jesus kept the law fully, which he did, never once did he break it. And all the time, I hear people telling me Jesus broke the law. For example, the disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath. He doesn't rebuke the disciples for doing that. See, the law is done away with. I'm like, see, you don't know your
2: scriptures.
0: (laughs) Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that you can't do that. You were not allowed to go work and harvest, but you could eat. The disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. See, Jesus broke the law. No, nowhere in the entire Old Testament will you find any command telling him you had to do that, period. Jesus broke the Sabbath. No, he didn't. He kept the Sabbath, and he taught his disciples to do so. Well, he healed. Yes, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that you can't heal on the Sabbath. Jesus even says, who of you, if your, your ox falls in a hole, isn't going to bring him out on the Sabbath? Give your, you know, feed them. If you're concerned about your ox, shouldn't we be concerned about people? The only commands that Yeshua ever broke were man made additions to the law of God. The only ones he ever broke. Well, somebody said, Oh, yeah? Matthew 5 38. You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's quoting the Old Testament. But I tell you, Jesus speaking, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take, your, take away your tunic, let him have the cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. So here Jesus is saying, see the law? I, I'm going to give you a different law well let's examine let's go back and see what the law really says before you get all carried away okay Leviticus nineteen eighteen says this you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself I am the Lord notice what he's saying is don't take vengeance don't have revenge because what are we how are we supposed to treat our neighbor We're supposed to love them. This is Leviticus. Proverbs 24, Do not say I will do to him just as he has done to me. Doesn't that sound like an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? He says, I will render to the man according to his work. In other words, don't say I'm going to take revenge, because God will. God sees, God will avenge you. Romans 12.19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Prior to this, in the same verses here, just the verses before, it says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. And then it goes on to say, Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. You see, it's not your place to take vengeance. That's God's place to do. He's the judge. Can you see the consistency from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament? So, what is He saying? Well, let's look at you know in Matthew five thirty-eight. Well, let's look at again Proverbs twenty-six twenty-seven. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. Basically, it's a warning. Don't harm your neighbor. Be wise. Protect your neighbor. These are some good rules. Obadiah 1.15 For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. The New Age term for this would be karma. Okay. Okay. Revelation 13, 10. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. In other words, there is, in God's law, a rule that, well, you might call it justice. The one who kills by the sword... He says, we'll die by the sword. Not by your hand, but by my hand. You see, God will be just. And all of these evil people that are out here in our society and in our world right now, molesting children, uh, sex trafficking, I'm telling you what, when justice comes, they are going to get theirs. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They will pay. If they do not receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're going to go to hell with those sins. And God will avenge. God's law is a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye, and He will do it. There are many examples in the Old Testament that it's kind of ironic where you see these people, what they do, they end up dying for, or doing. Many examples of that. God is just kind of funny that way. Just that way. Matthew seven twelve says this, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You see, we look at that law an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and we look at that as vengeance is mine. Now, a lot of those things in the Old Testament, you have to understand, were set up as a civil law to create order. God is not against civil laws to keep order in society. He had a lot of them. And they were good to keep order in society. And so ultimately, that is kind of one of those things. But what he's saying here in Matthew is you've heard it said that there's, yes, that is true, but not for you to do it, for me to do it. You are to act in love towards your neighbor. Share the gospel. And if they don't repent, believe me, there will be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth it is mine to avenge it is mine to repay thus says the lord leviticus 24:19 if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done so shall it be done to him fracture for fracture eye for eye tooth for tooth as he has caused disfigurement of a man so shall it be done to him it's really just the golden rule what you want you know do to others as you would have them do to you so Can you see how Yeshua wasn't against the Torah? And He wasn't even just elevating it. He was giving the spirit of the law in Matthew 5 when He was saying that. You've heard it said, and I can do that to every one of them, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that even if you look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery with her in your heart. He is taking... You've said, here's the physical, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, the spirit of the law is to have a clean mind. You've heard it said, don't murder. The physical. But I tell you, I'm going to elevate the spiritual... That if you even hate your brother, your heart is evil. You've murdered your brother already in your heart. That's the spiritual meaning of it. That's not going against Torah. That's elevating the spiritual aspect of the law. The true meaning of it. Not by the letter, but by the spirit of the law. That's what I mean by Yeshua amending the law. Okay, that there is a change in the law. Not only is its location changed, not only is the condemnation taken away when we fail, but also he has elevated it to the spiritual, in part because the location has changed. It's now not just a rule to do, but it's something that's in my heart and in my mind, so I want to do it. That's the spirit of the law. Make sense? When we understand the law that way, it's not so legalistic then, is it? Because as we saw so many times here in the Old Testament, what was the intent of it? Not to do harm to your neighbor, to protect your neighbor. He even says if you have a, a, a rooftop type thing, to build a parapet, to build a, a railings around it. What? To, just, to, to, to love your neighbor, to protect your neighbor, to be wise. That's the spirit of it. Not, well, I better do it because God said I better do it but because we do it out of love. And that's why I obey God. Not because He told me to do it. I mean, I do because of that. But it's because I want to. Because I love Him. And as I've been saying over and over and over again, the law was given after they were redeemed at Passover. They were redeemed. Then God gives them the law. Just like Yeshua redeemed us, and now we have a law that because we love Him, we want to follow. Thoughts, questions?
2: So, when Paul is laying this all out, was there a radical shift in the, the priesthood?
0: There or, was. Or was Yeah, I would say it was this, that you had the traditional Judaism, that was the system. And people were leaving from that when Jesus came. And more and more were leaving. There was a, a really high number of Messianic Jews. That's what the first church was, were Messianic Jews. And there became a divide in what ended up happening by 100 AD is those Messianic Jews found themselves between a rock and a hard place because the traditional Judaizers they were not allowed to go into the synagogues anymore. They were kind of excommunicated you might say. Then you had the gentile Christians who started to boast over the branches and they looked down on them because they would you know had their own, they followed the commandments. and. Um, so they were kind of out on their own which was kind of a sad thing and we one of these times when we get done with Hebrews maybe even before we're going to go kind of through like the Sabbath which is going to go through a lot of that history which is going to show you how the church took that turn um, and when and it's pretty surprising at some of the things that our early church fathers which any anybody who goes to seminary will study these people as the foundations of the church today and to see what they were teaching and how they justified teaching it you i guarantee you will look at it and go wow how did they get to that conclusion and the answer is culture not bible for sure and i mean it's right there in your in their own writings you'll see this this isn't you won't even have to interpret it All you'll have to do is take the verse that they're quoting and then they expound on it and then go look at what it says in the Old Testament. The very same verse. And see it says the exact opposite thing that they say it's saying. I mean it is that clear and simple. It is happening now. You're right. Uh, And again, why? Culture.
1: Culture. So with Go ahead. In acts like 15. We get the Jerusalem Council going on, and they come in and they say, "Here's the things that we would ask, ask the Gentile believers to, I guess, practice." The law can be read in the, in the synagogues every Saturday, and then they let, write this letter to send out with Paul as he's going into the churches, and basically, you know, he has those kind of regulations, I guess, that he gives. I guess, what's your thought, or what was the idea, is that like? Here, start small with some baby steps. Um, I guess it's always kind of that. Hang, I guess hangs me up a little bit on you know some of these things. I get you know, Spirit of Law. You know, talks about that in Romans, even what we just read here in chapter yeah. seven. Some of that. You know, that that we love our neighbors, but it seems like they're giving them. They're not saying you need to follow these things, whether it be dietary, whether it be morality. It's just basically saying like you know. Here's these three regulations that we feel you should be taking on, I guess. Yeah,
0: why those? Yeah, I mean, why,
1: why not? Yeah, you need to study the law, you know, I guess.
0: Yeah, in Acts 15, as he's saying, in the Jerusalem council, the whole council is meeting because of Acts chapter 10. When Cornelius, a Gentile, has been baptized, the Holy Spirit has come upon him. This is another bomb that Gentiles are now welcomed in, and the Holy Spirit has come upon them. So in Acts 15, they're meeting for that reason. And they're saying, what do we do? Well, all these Gentiles are coming into the faith. What do we tell them? Well, they said, well, Moses is read in the synagogue every Saturday, every Sabbath. Therefore, we really don't need to talk about Moses and the basics. They're going to hear that every Sabbath. Which, by the way, shows that they were meeting on the Sabbath. That's what the church was doing. Anyway, what ends up happening then is they say, well, we don't want to overburden them, so let's just tell them to do these three things. One of them, don't eat blood. That kind of takes two into one. One of them is don't eat strangled animals. That's because the blood would remain in it. And don't eat meat with blood in it. Okay? So there's one of them. Second thing is, do not uh, practice sexual immorality. And the third one is um, sexual immorality. Oh, do not eat food sacrificed to idols. So those three things. Now, which is interesting to me because like I said uh, somewhere here recently, that if I had new believers coming to my Bible study, would those be the three things I told them not to do? (laughs) Highly doubtful, but this is what the church in the first century was saying.
1: Is that because those were common practices in the day that you had a lot of this rampant sexual immorality, food being offered as sacrifices, people eating, you know, blood that hadn't had it, or animals that hadn't had? Well let like me ask that, you this. Okay. Is that the right? every like everywhere they write to, it's like, hey, quit doing bad sex stuff. Yeah. It's like <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. It just sounds like that stuff definitely- we
0: Yeah, I was going to say, does that sound maybe like it was more rampant back then than it is today? I mean, I'd say bad sex stuff is going on right now in our country. I would say that um, eating blood, who in the church even cares? I mean, you've got blood sausage. Do they care how an animal is killed, whether you wring the neck of the pheasant or not? eating food sacrificed to idols. Maybe that one isn't as prevalent today, but I don't know if you've ever gone to a Chinese restaurant and they've got their little Buddha up front and they've got their plate of food in front of it. So it's still around. So I don't think it's necessarily because it was so prevalent at that time any more than it is today outside of maybe a little more of the food sacrificed to idols as it is the spirit of the law again. Why do you not have sexual immorality? 1 Corinthians 6 says this, do not unite yourself with a prostitute. Do you not know that you become one with her? How can you unite something that is godly with something that is ungodly? That's how Satan corrupted the seed back in Genesis, right? You had an unholy, unholy union of the spiritual, the angels, and the natural, the human, and you basically had offspring that were giants and it seems to be that's where evil spirits and demons came from. Evil spirits and demons aren't fallen angels, they're the offspring of these Nephilim it seems. I'm not going to get into all that but there's some evidence to support that. Okay, Fallen angels are separate. Both of the fallen angels and the evil spirits go after mankind to corrupt us. But anyway, point being if you have sexual immorality, Jesus says this. Even way back in the in the Old Testament, he says the two become one flesh. Malachi, right? So, if I am going and being sexually immoral, there is a spiritual problem going on here because I'm uniting myself spiritually with somebody else. That's a bigger deal than just premarital sex, you know what I mean? Just we've taken this little just like immoral thing almost like it's saying a bad word. No, it's deeper than that. There is something in the spirit that happens when you do that. Communion. Okay, I'm one of those who I think that communion is vastly underappreciated in churches today. Because we treat it as if it's just something that is a nice little symbol to do. It'd be nice, just to let you know, you know, whatever. The way scripture puts it, it's way more serious than that. I mean so serious to the point when you read John 6 he talks about um, you know unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no life in you I mean the whole just about the whole chapter of John chapter 6 because what happens when we partake of him now again I'm not gonna uh, do the re-sacrificing Catholic thing in communion I'm not talking about that what I'm talking about is when you go to have fellowship with somebody, even in the temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple, you had the altar of showbread. Who ate from it? The priests only. Because they were invited to the Lord's table. And when you're invited to the Lord's table, there was a unity and an acceptance and a fellowship that went on there. So it's, more, it's much deeper than just going out to dinner with somebody. There's a spiritual meaning to that. Eating blood. The church doesn't care. Satanists do. Why are they drinking blood? What do they believe happens when you drink blood? Power. power. You take the life of that individual, of that creature, in you. And you receive their power, their life, in some way, shape, or form. Now that makes no sense to me. But I can tell you this, the scriptures are very clear. The life of a creature is in its blood. All the way from in the Old Testament before the priesthood of Aaron, God had clean and unclean rules for food. Matter of fact, the very first law of scripture is a a food law. Do not eat of the tree. The very first law is a food law. Now, but we see that that blood, even in the time of Noah, is, we're told, abstain from blood. So that is not a Levitical law. None of those three things that we see in Acts 15 are Levitical laws. Those were all there. I don't know if I can say the eating food sacrifice to idols, but possibly. But at least the others, for sure, were there before Aaron. And so I see all three of these things. We are reserved for one man's blood. One man's life. Yeshua is my life. And therefore, we abstain from blood because the life of a creature is in its blood. Satanists believe that. Christians don't. And so... I think that there was a spiritual, an underlying spiritual meaning to every one of those things that compromises our unity with Christ. They understood that. Therefore, they said, these are really important things to do. You know, whether you you know don't steal or whatnot, you're going to hear that in the synagogue, but you, you steal something, that is not going to affect you the way a sexual sin is going to affect you. That is not going to affect you because even Corinthians then goes on to talk about food sacrifice to idols and how can you eat at the table of the Lord and the table of demons as well. You can't do that. There's a spiritual damage that takes place in doing so. So I don't understand all of the details of it outside of I, f- I think that that's more spiritual than the surface as well.
2: I think it also spurred deals with our body being a temple, because these three things all deal with your body, where we are going from a time period of them being in the temple to our bodies being that temple, and these three sins directly affect our bodies, our things that are happening to our our flesh, which is, I'm sure, one of the things we'll get into even with the pork laws and the food laws is when you see a temple being desecrated, it is always with the sacrifice of a pig or a sacrifice of an unclean animal to that temple. So I think that's also an important Maybe just a bit of information on looking at the differences of those laws being how important our temple is and the sanctity of that us being the house for God's spirit and his body.
0: Very good. Yeah,
1: that makes sense, yeah, perfect, thanks. How come, I guess, my question is, like, maybe it's already been answered and I'm just not hearing it. Um, like, why not more emphasis to the, you know, the, the Jerusalem Council comes out. Like, why not more emphasis on this, you know, some of these things that we see that we see written about in Hebrews. Um, I don't know if that makes
0: sense. I think because the, the people that they're writing to in the Jerusalem Council have already had that foundation laid. They're Gentiles. They know the gospel. They're not hung up on the priesthood right now because really the Jerusalem council is going to Gentiles, not Jews, so they don't have that temple background. That's not as important to them. That makes sense. And really, if you read the book of Galatians, I've got a, a study on Galatians that I'd like to do here now too sometime, but Galatians, you could really call it Second Galatians the book of Acts was 1st Galatians because before the Jerusalem Council you see that they are going to the same churches in Galatia and they're laying that foundation they're talking about Yeshua being the Messiah all of those kinds of things but these are Gentiles who have grown up with pagan religions pagan festivals they had more festivals than the Jews did and so in the book of Acts they say what should we tell these people and then they go back And they are building on what was laid uh, the the first time.
1: So this seems to imply that the Gentiles were able to be in the synagogue, just not. uh, I mean, at what level were they having other than the early disciples and um, you know those church leaders? I guess what
0: it kind of depended on who they were. There were three categories basically. You had Jews. I'm going to put four. Then you had just Gentiles, which were just pagans. Then you had proselytes and God-fearers. A God-fearer was a Gentile who believed in God, feared God, and by all practical purposes, you would say is a Christian. But they had not been circumcised. Therefore, they did not have full citizenship within the within Israel they would not be considered native born Israel and they were not welcome to celebrate the festivals and things like that with the Jew a proselyte was a god fear with one added step basically and that was circumcision full conversion into Judaism then they could be uh, into going into the synagogues, into the festivals, and, and be anything that a Jew would do. But we see, I think, Cornelius was a God-fearer. Okay? He had not been circumcised and all that. So there were different categories uh, within that. And part of what Paul does in Galatians, the whole book of Galatians really is over the topic of circumcision, where Paul is saying, you don't need to be circumcised in the flesh. If you're circumcised in the heart by the Spirit of God, you are a proselyte. You are a Jew. And so, yeah, they were allowed in. And so among the Messianics at this point, even if they weren't circumcised, then they were kind of getting in there. But those ultra-Orthodox Jews would not have let them in because they had not been circumcised. What's so
1: that? You said find a different synagogue.
0: What's that? They Yet, or they were starting to meet in their homes the churches were starting to meet in homes and, and things like that yeah. but when Paul would go and preach initially in a town he always starts in the synagogue and uh, usually after a few days he was kicked out and then he would go to other places so. anything else? All right, well, we'll uh, close in prayer. And like I said, next week, 5 o'clock, for Bible study. No potluck. All right. Heavenly Father, I thank, I thank you again for your word and for being our great high priest. Lord, we are just so grateful to be living um, in the priesthood of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood one in which we can stand freely before You without condemnation of the law, but yet one with the law written in our hearts, one in which we have a desire to obey You, a desire to follow, to share Your love with others. And so we just pray that You would continue to teach us Your Word, to teach us Your law, that we may know You, that we may um, adequately represent You, and that your characteristics, your essence, your very nature would become more and more clear to us each and every day. God, I I pray that those struggles that we have in our life, where we do break the commandments of God, even without that condemnation, Father, that you would give us the strength to overcome, that we would purify our lives and get rid of these things, through Your Spirit, that we may live holy in a life worthy of the calling. And Lord, when we fail, may we just remember that You are our Savior, our Redeemer, our Priest, who has pronounced us clean. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.